Welcome to Podcast on Fire on Legend of a Fighter and Aces Go Places 2. And after being in the zone as kung fu comedy filmmakers and action performers, the young clan or family turned to the story of a real historical legend and more of an attempt at serious filmmaking. We talk and review, therefore, Yun Vorping's uh, Wuping's, uh, classic Legend of a Fighter. I'm giving my opinion of uh, away already, but I think it's a classic. Uh, that's uh, for the first half. And in the second half, we turn to the follow-up to the Cinema City action comedy cash cow aces go. Cash cow aces go places. This time, there's robots. Bigger and better? Well, find out with me, can it be? And joining me as co-host... From uh, possibly sunny Florida, but Florida nonetheless is East Screen, West Screen's main host, co-host Paul Fox. So, hello and good morning, buddy. Hello, sir, from sunny South Florida, at least at the moment. Good to be back. I always enjoy coming on to talk about old Hong Kong cinema or new Hong Kong cinema or whatever's, you know, uh, meeting our fancy at the current moment. Mm, absolutely. And uh, it's, this, uh, it's a valid thing to be be stuck in the old uh, days and ways because there's things to explore, things to give context to. And uh, certainly Legend of a Fighter is uh, something that uh, doesn't seem to go away because there's always a, a story being told about uh, about the character Fok Gap whether here in 1983 or um, or still still being told. I don't know when the latest movie incarnation was or the latest TV incarnation was, but uh, obviously, uh, as we'll talk of, people have uh, seen the story of Fokion Gap more widely, probably, in uh, Fearless, the Jet Li movie. But uh, here it's a little, uh, fairly, fairly known, but still a little legend of a fighter. But uh, let's uh, get uh, on, on with it and maybe share what we've seen of this uh, character through through TV and movies uh, throughout the years. I'm sure, sure Paul has some more examples than I do. But uh, we'll do the contact information first of all. This is Podcast on Fire on the Podcast on Fire network. We are located on podcastonfire.com along with... Uh, uh, because this is not the only show we do. We do uh, shows on Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, sleazy cinema, ninja cinema, audio commentaries every now and again. And uh, much more. We also do bonus episodes exclusively for the website, so check those out. If you have any questions or feedback, uh, email us, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. And if you want to follow us on social media, use the handy buttons at the top of our website. Uh, first, uh, the Facebook button leads to our page. And while you're on Facebook, uh, type in Podcast on Fire Network and you can find uh, where the discussion group is as well. So come in, join, watch show updates and discussion. All very friendly and cool. And uh, also click the Twitter button if you want to follow us on Twitter. We are at Podcast on Fire. And uh, I write uh, reviews as well, uh, Hong Kong movies, Taiwanese movies of a variety of uh, genres, mainly focusing on you know, special effects tinted Taiwanese movies or uh, social realist and uh, female revenge driven movies, uh, not necessarily the the classier artist stuff because I'm not smart enough to to watch that stuff but uh, you you can find all that over at sogoodreviews.com and uh, see what you think and you also want if you want to watch video reviews of my work you can turn to sleazykvideo.com and my tweets are available at sogoodreviews and uh, finally also I've got to mention the other buttons at the top of our website iTunes if you want to rate and subscribe to us on iTunes uh, there's a link to our feed and there's also a link to Stitcher Radio or their online presence where you can stream our shows but you can also download free applications to your preferred device from Apple App Store and Google Play so that's my plugs, east screen, west screen what's the URL and uh, what's uh, going on here at the tail end of uh, 2016 on the show well, you can find us over at concast.com, which is the hub for the podcast itself, as well as other stuff that I tend to do from time to time. 
And we're still going. Um, in fact, I'm so far behind on editing that I'm still editing the summer shows we recorded from when I was still in Hong Kong. Oh, it's a boy, is it warm out? <laughs> That's why I never try to be current, Paul, because I also have an editing backlog. So I don't try to say anything about the election or anything, or the American election or anything about the current weather. I just try to make the shows very like genderless and neutral. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that doesn't work too well for us because poor Kevin is doing news reads on things. And, and unfortunately, true. as I get further backlogged out, the news becomes less and less relevant. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, concast.com indeed. And uh, we'll uh, move on. Uh, first of all, there will be a podcast uh, promo break. And after that, we'll return to discuss Jumbo Ping's Legend of a Fighter from 1983. So sit tight and we'll be back. GGTMC Live for you, fresh air. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service. Breaking films down and turning them around. Giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Bringing class to the trash since 1977. And welcome back, and the first movie up for review is Legend of a Fighter from 1983, and plot from my review of, of a film, or a little e extract from the review. So, here we go. Uh, ticking off the aspects that make up the story of martial arts hero Fok Jung Gap, uh, most uh, famously possibly, portrayed by Jet Li in Fearless. Jumbo Ping isn't wrong in treating the movie as a checklist uh, to complete, uh, in order to complete the hero, because uh, what's contained within is often incredible. It's like my short opinion already, but here we go. Uh, starting with the central component of Fokyung Gap in his younger years, played by Yun Jat Cho. Being taught uh, Kung Fu by teacher Kong Ho San, which is Yasuaki Kurata's uh, role. He, he's uh, there only in the uh, form of a teacher, but uh, in secret he is uh, uh, training uh, training young Fokyung Gap. Yeah, under you know under the radar of his father, played by Philip Coe, yeah, because he'd rather see Fokyung Gap edu educated first and foremost. Uh, Lung Gayan takes over as older Fokyung Gap, uh, who defeats Western and Japanese challenges among other things, and it all ends uh, you know with a proper dramatic touch. But we won't spoil that. So that's sort of uh, the the spotty plot, but it's um, it, it sort of plays into the review. I think that one half is very story driven and the other half is a little bit checklist uh, driven but uh, we'll see what we uh, both uh, think of that in uh, in all honesty so first of all paul a short opinion of a uh, legend of a fighter well it does feel a bit like a carryover from the old uh shaw brothers era for these kinds of uh martial arts genre films again think that this is 1982 and we're when this film is released and this is the same year as things like the first days of school places which i think we talked about last time right so it was a kind of period of transition where you had a lot of the old school stuff happening in some movies, but then you had groups like Cinema City and some of the new creatives coming on the scene and really starting to change the feel and the tone of cinema. I mean, uh, I think a year later in 1983, we're going to get Soy Hark's um, Zoo uh, Warriors from the Magic Mountain, which is really going to, again, shake up the genre of the not not really kung fu films, but the wuxia films, and and give us a sort of new aesthetic, a new dynamic. Now that being said, this is a very good film. I think you know you do have Yun Wu Ping at the helm, but it is a little bit cookie cutter, I will say, because there are quite a few elements that we see being taken from preceding films, 
a lot of influence coming from uh, Bruce Lee films. And, I mean, this is a character, as you mentioned, that's been done in multiple incarnations. Uh, perhaps not quite as famous, at least internationally, as some of the other uh, well-known uh, martial arts figures who were real people. So you have Wong Fei Hong, perhaps, is maybe the most famous internationally. You have... Um, People like Fong Sayok. And all played by Jet Li for some reason. Even Jet Li got to play <laughs> Fuck You and Gap, obviously. <laughs> you, you do have this, this sense here that um, they, because of the, maybe the historical nature of, of these heroes, there's tendency to keep returning back to them, right? Um, but of course, there's a lot of liberties that are taken. And maybe we'll talk about some of the changes and the liberties that this film took in comparison with what we find in the actual history. Yeah, I sort of agree. I think uh, my, my favorite is the first half. I think it's quite, uh, you know, a great example of, um, you know, a, build, a story build-up, a character-driven build-up, because uh, that character-driven nature and character motivation works in tandem with uh, the action we see and the uh, demonstrations we see uh, as the training goes on. So we kind of watch it for the movie's sake and not sitting there waiting for the action. So I enjoy that. The second half with... Longayan, you know, Beardy, is a little bit more spotty and part of a sort of checklist for Yun Ping, but he ends strongly, I think, uh, on a character-driven note. I think the ending is quite um, quite impactful. Uh, you know, obviously ties uh, ties itself together because it ties into what we saw in the first half. Um, uh, even though it is an end fight, it's a martial arts movie, but I think dramatically there was some sound uh, choices here. And I guess we we should just sort of uh, quote some Wikipedia stuff about uh, Fok Yun Gap or uh, Huo Yuan Jia, if that's that's possibly a Mandarin pronunciation, but uh, according to Wikipedia, he was a Chinese martial artist. Uh, he is considered a hero in China for defeating foreign fighters in highly publicized uh, matches at the, at a time when China's Chinese sovereignty was being eroded by foreign foreign imperialism, concessions, and spheres of influence. And the movies have depicted his death. Uh, this one doesn't, as uh, you know, in, in Fist of Fury where Bruce Lee plays his student. He's poisoned. Yeah, I don't remember what was the deal in Feel, so we'll, we'll keep that off the table now if there was a different uh, interpretation or if he even died in Fearless. But uh, regardless, uh, from another Wikipedia section of the article, the historian Chen Gongche was also one of uh, Fokun Gap's students, believed that the cause of his master's death was something called hemoptysis disease. I'm probably not pronouncing that right. Uh, Shen wrote that Ho was introduced to a Japanese physician by the judo instructor as his health declined. The physician prescribed some medicine for his condition, but his health continued to deteriorate, and he was admitted to the Shanghai Red Cross Hospital, where he died two weeks later. And uh, although his student did not mention that the medicine described by the Japanese physician contained arsenic or any other poisons, some leaders of the Chinwu Athletic Association that Fokun Gap co-founded speculated that their master was poisoned around the time of his death. But that, I, I don't think anyone has come forth with conclusive evidence uh, uh, about this uh, very thing. But it makes for cinema, of course. Uh, obviously, Fist of Fury starts out, starts out on that high note, and it's a definite he was poisoned, because now revenge is in the air. You know, it's the classic revenge template. That possibly Fist of Fury is one of the four or five movies that did really, really well. You know, but uh, so that's sort of... Uh, Sort of the uh, historical um, 
historical uh, uh, background. But uh, what, what else outside of movies do you remember? Uh, you know, just scanning Hong Kong TV uh, late at night. Do you remember any series, uh, TV series about the uh, fucking gap uh, turn, turning up? Yeah, I mean, he's the characters appeared in quite a few things uh, over the years. You have uh, 2001 TV series, which starred Vincent Zhao out of China. Eddie Ko was in the role of uh, in a 1995 Hong Kong ATV series, which starred Danny Yen, uh, Danny Yen uh, which was called Fist of Fury. I've seen uh, like a feature version, like a condensed feature version of uh, part of that series. Looked solid enough, uh, but I've not seen the whole thing. That that series is technically the prequel to the Danny Yen film that we get uh, in 2010, The Return of Chen Zhen. There's a re- uh, you mentioned the Fearless. Uh, movie in uh, 2008, I think, or 2000, no, 2006 with Jet Li, um, which sort of repopularized the character. And then in 2008, we actually get Ikin Chang and Jordan Chan in a Hong Kong, another ATV series, uh, where Ikin Chang is playing the role of Fong Hien Gap, which is just, it just seems like a weird casting choice to me. But uh, you can catch clips out there of him, you know, doing it on YouTube. And, uh, and I'm guessing that there's a, probably a DVD set out there that's a that's available because i think around that time you you do see some of these series being released with uh english subtitles so that might be in circulation for somebody if you're really looking to dig deep into the character well the clip made him look uh, regal enough and by the looks of it he wasn't all doubled in the martial arts you know he did some hand-to-hand choreography so um if I would have the stamina to sit through 20, 30, 40 episodes of it, not sure about that. I don't know if that format has changed over the years, or, or, or do they still do that, as far as you know, like, big, like, a block of 40 episodes soap drama thingy. It depends on, you know, a, a standard uh, TVB drama, like a standard situation comedy, is going to run 20, maybe 25 episodes. Uh, some of the big, more expensive period piece dramas tend to run longer uh, they tend to get a bit more investment into them so they'll push them with a longer storyline maybe 30 or 40 episodes Let, let's talk the young clan for a bit uh, because i think it's important to establish this context that they had you know established through working for msiyun seasonal corporation the sort of gold standard of kung fu comedy even though it's a flawed genre with Drunken Master, oh, Snake and Eagle Shadow first, really, and Drunken Master. But Jumbo Ping at the helm and his, uh, you know, brothers and uh, both performers and action choreographers in their own right, some directors. In my opinion, and I would like your take on it if you have a particular take, they did provide that gold standard, but then started doing frenzied, more, even more schizophrenic kung fu comedy during the 80s because you have... This is the break, though. But uh, you had movies like Dreadnought, uh, Shaolin Drunk God, Taoism Drunk God, and obviously mismatched couples, which is more... It's, it's not kung fu comedy. It's certainly comedy. It's certainly frenzy. It's certainly just part of that unmatched insanity and tone and energy. And I always joke, and I, because I don't know, but I wouldn't be surprised if these are just uh, ideas and stuff from late night idea sessions whether under the influence or not under the influence because some of the stuff in these movies in the 80s from the young clan it's out there man but it's so much damn fun they they go from idea to execution you know uh, especially the, the, the two drunk god movies uh, they're far from those standard 
put a Jackie Chan-esque hero at the forefront, be a little bit wacky, and then do some outside fighting. Right, they're far from that. They're, they're sort of very their own. So I, I turned to the Yung Clan for my good Kung Fu comedy fix. So, any memories uh, yourself of uh, when Yung Ping, you know, broke Jackie Chan and those other movies, if you've seen those other movies, like the Drunk God movies and uh, Dread North and what have you? Yeah, I mean, they're all pretty much classics in my mind, but of course, mis- mis- Mismatched Couples takes the cake as the, I think, the most oddball extreme action, weird kung fu mashup. I mean, Donnie Yen breakdancing and doing some kind of, like, breakdance kung fu. It's just so weird, and it's so outside of the box that I can't help but think that it was definitely a late-night session where, you know, the Yun clan were sitting around and passing some kind of pipe. Or just like like late midnight, uh, you know, noodle stall sessions, like drinking those tall fucking beers that you see in movies, just getting hammered into 5 a.m. in the morning and then taking the ideas to the set. It works well for me. I mean, I really enjoy that. And I think that's why with this film, it's almost like two films because you have two actors playing the, the main character. You have... Yunya Cho, who's an actor and choreographer in his own right, has a very distinctive style, has a very distinctive look, and you know he takes up a good forty minutes of the film as the younger Falk Yun Gap. My problem is, is he's not that much younger looking. It's a kind of an infernal affairs deal. Just deal yeah. with it, like uh, Tony Leung, t- like Sean Yu turned into Tony Leung. Okay, you know, so it's you just have to deal with it. But uh, he he changed in appearance and sort of stature and uh, and look and confidence like and also attitude because once Lung Kayan who's great he's a you know great presence a great martial artist uh, on screen once he shows up it's a completely different tone for the film with the exception of the the boat scene which really i mean he's in the boat scene but it's really the other young brother Yun Chen man Yun Chen Yang Yun Cheng Yan excuse me uh, as the pipe-smoking kung fu master who shows up and kind of steals the show. And really, that whole sequence is just like there. I kept, I kept waiting for um, the foreigner who was in that scene to sort of come back into the picture and, and you know, play a bigger role. But really, that's just a sort of a showcase scene on its own. And you could maybe take that and remove it from the film. And it has no real true bearing on the story, other than that, it's a you know a case of the the character Falk Yun Gap conf- confronting a foreigner, basically. I, I don't mind it as a comedic sequence, but it's certainly the movie hasn't led up and or rather mixed and matched its tones in that way. I mean, if you look at the beginning again, like even you know kung fu comedies that started out with a historical setup often gave way for the usual backwoods tea houses martial arts school training comedy you know templates and often not very funny ones at that but there, there is an attempt here to place us into a historical context and then deal with it somewhat some, somewhat and mostly serious it's not a highly melodramatic film but it certainly is mostly there for the you know for for the serious depiction of uh, of kung fu and all of that and out of Yu Mo Ping's directed movies it seems to be the first serious one and I think he you know, he's, he was accomplished already, but uh, there there is, especially for the first half, a sense of he's he rises to the occasion. I think, yeah, 
putting serious kung fu on the screen might not be very commercially friendly and very fun to watch but they I certainly like this change of uh, tone and, and they all seem to have it uh, have it in them and and even earlier stuff like I think it's a challenger that approaches uh, Philip Kofay's character and he gets an egg thrown in his face. Even that isn't played very broad because you expect, Paul, even though you might watch just five kung fu comedies from back in the day per year, you just expect someone getting hit in the face with an egg and the soundtrack to go... It's broad, yeah, but it isn't as broad as you expected. That and the makeup effects, because you do have a character... Uh, who goes by the name of uh, Bucktooth, basically, who has these very sort of fake rabbit teeth, and he's got basically penciled on freckles to have this sort of very cartoon-esque look that you would almost expect from a straight-on comedy or a kid's film, you know, in in some aspects. So they, they carry over some of these elements that were very familiar from the films of the 70s. And uh, that's a part of the reason why I think it still feels like a, a, a holdout from that earlier era. Very much so. And I mean, I like that sequence the, the least because of that, including like there was no context for introducing the back to character for laughs only, really. That's the only uh, reason. But it's a sequence that, as you said, could rightly be cut out and no one would miss it, really. Uh, but uh, let's talk action for a little bit. It never gets old seeing a very floaty but stable camera capture these clear intricate details of martial arts choreography whether it's fighting or Kofei demonstrating I mean Kung Fu is part of the movie but it's not the driving motivating to us of padding it with action scenes but when it's on the screen it's just great man I mean you, you forget sometimes how good Philip Kofei was as a martial arts on, artist on screen because his career has more been about carving his own path as a filmmaker and not always making great movies you know he went to uh, the philippines at a stage in his career those movies are sometimes okay but sometimes not the best showcase for for action from performers we uh, we know and love but uh, if you see this you see a diagram pole fighter which was uh, the year after i said by the way 1983 for legend of a fighter you're right it's 1982 but uh, i i never get tired of that and i love when kofei is uh, fighting this uh, another challenger possibly I forget now with his hand one hand behind his back and he uses his knee as well to se- to to separate his opponent's uh, legs a little bit and that I, I don't know anything about this stuff but you just uh, I I find it uh, exciting in one of those like immortal ways it never gets old to see this stuff in 2016 to me it's not old and to me it's just better when it's captured this uh, this clearly you know and they do have some some very good sequences that are reminiscent of you know the old style of filmmaking where it's a long take you know it's by today's standards it it would be considered an extremely long take where the actors are you know doing several moves and then one really big move that could be very easily mistimed or or mismanaged meaning you'd have to shoot it again and again and again and it's very very impressive the one thing that really stood out in my mind was the egg trick and unfortunately, the quality of the video is such that yeah, I can slow it down. I can pause it. I can't really figure out, did they actually, was his Kung Fu su- such that he could actually do that? Or did they have some kind of of little prosthetic technique or something going on to break the eggs? Because it's a really good effect visually on the screen. That's good, though, when you can't figure it out. 
and a 1982 movie like out outdoes you so uh, that's not a bad thing um, it's all a classic template by the way obviously uh, as Paul said it's, it's you're you get reminded of Shaw Brothers movies and things like that they, you know Lau Ga Lung wouldn't be out of place directing a movie like this for instance uh, you know the character initially you know he's too weak now the Fok Young Gap character but he he wants to learn Kung Fu and he sort of goes on a little melodramatic uh uh, rampage like why can't I learn Kung Fu why must I study but obviously he, his father is putting him on a path that seems right he isn't a tyrant but he's putting him, him on a path of uh, you know educate yourself when hearing that and minus the you know the melodrama banging your arm you know hand against the wall why can't I learn Kung Fu it feels like it wants more as a movie and that's I think is a key especially for the quite splendid first half uh, Granted, uh, Yun Yacho, you know, he is one of those students that isn't taking his uh, study study seriously. You know, when they're reciting uh, poetry and he's playing with those little marionette uh, paper puppets and stuff. But for me, that doesn't uh, stray. It doesn't stray into comedy and the movie has trouble getting back on its feet. Uh, it seems to be in uh, tune with the character. Or what do you think of those little light touches between teacher and student at that point? Those are very good sequences, and I really liked the chemistry uh, between the teacher and the student that was sort of established. And if I could really take a moment to to praise my favorite thing from this film, it's definitely uh, Yusaki Kurata's performance here. Because normally this is a guy who they would you know tap on and, and throw him into a sort of two-dimensional bad guy role. And here he's given a chance to play a much more interesting and, and and sort of almost honorable character. And I really, you know, anytime he was on the screen and having fun or, you know, being clever, because at first you're really, you're really not sure what kind of guy he is and that this gets kind of, you know, elaborated on over time. And I found him for me to be the most interesting aspect uh, of the film. And I wouldn't have minded to have more uh, of him. As, as the film splits, as we get it, you know, in into the second part, of course, uh, his his role comes back into focus. And and I won't spoil anything, but there there's a bit of a sort of a carryover here from uh, Bruce Lee films, where the actors Lung Kayan and uh, uh, Yuasaki Kurata both have shirtless moments, right, where they're <laughs> you know, flexing and, and doing stuff. And, and I, I attribute this back to, you know, the kind of physicality that Bruce Lee was using. And I, we've talked about this in uh, other episodes where we've talked about Bruce Lee films. And here, I you know, I think that, you know, he kind of outshines Lung Kayen, you know, in his sort of warm-up scenes where, where he's shirtless and, and he's all sort of greased up. I mean, he looks great. It's, it's, an, it's a bit of an even challenge, but you're right, because both are in the shape of their lives, in their prime or what have you. I, I, I don't know because Karata's character was a little bit older at that point, so he's a great look, but that... Yeah, the, 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 that didn't really work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it didn't age his, uh, age his torso necessarily. <laughs> but hey, hey, it's, it's, kung, it's kung fu, but not like... Cliches, cliches, cliches. No, 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 not at all. It's, uh, you know, he all makes it work, in particular because there's a story element established. There's a chemistry between them as characters established like I, I love those little adorable moments between them in the first half where they have fun manip- manipulating Fokyung Gap's father 
but it's situational, it's suitable, it's not forced cartoony, which you can say for a good 80-90% of kung fu comedies that happen in the wake of uh, Jackie Chan's uh, success. I mean, I watch them, but when they're going wrong, they're going so wrong. And I always bring up the, this example, but, but screw you all, I'm going to do it until the day I die. I, I've seen Thundering Mantis, but I need. I started it once. Aborted it quickly and then returned to it later when I was ready. It's a Long Gaian, um kung fu comedy. He's great in it when he's not doing comedy. Because I, I don't think he's suited for comedy, especially when he has a beard as well. He looks vicious. But this movie starts with him. I think he has a bird in a cage with him. And he's uh, jumping and skipping in the street. And you got on the soundtrack. And I went, no, I'm not ready for this today. Not today. I know what this movie is going to spend most of its time on. And there's possibly going to be some good stuff later, but I don't have the patience for 60-70 minutes of shtick that I know is not going to work. I was right, but the action bits were great in Thundering Mantis. But it's one of those things where kung fu comedies often don't give me hope to sort of uh, sit down there with an open mind. When they are really good, as in the case of Snake and Eagle Shadow, for instance. Then Then you understand why the genre broke, definitely. So, uh, I don't know, do you have the patience for standard, uh, put a Jackie Chan-esque hero in the main role kung fu comedy, all shot outdoors? Do you have the patience for that stuff? There was a time when those really appealed to me, but I think that my sensibilities have maybe moved on a bit, and, uh, I mean, I can go back and watch them, but they're not the first things that I like to go to in terms of, uh, watching a comedy, yeah. Yeah, and another drunken master sort of character played by someone who in his 20s and things like that, it, it, it doesn't work just because you put it on screen. It, you know, what Jim Ping did with his father was iconic, with, uh, Simon, Simon Jung, but, uh, but yeah. Uh, I like little, um, you know, dialogue the dialogue between uh, Kurata and uh, Yun Yacho about martial arts because you come to like his character, the teacher character, and he talks about like that all martial arts styles flow into each other. And his uh, student asks, "But why has kung fu been divided into so many styles then?" B- because Kurata's uh, character's idea is that you shouldn't refuse to teach to outsiders. You know, he's a forward thinker. But then, shortly thereafter, scene or two, or maybe in the same scene, he has that turnaround saying to him, well, not killing your enemy is like committing suicide, essentially. You just have to see that through. So that turnaround in Karata's character, you is not the standard sort of like, aha, I know what that character is doing now. Oh, he's a bad guy. Of course he's a bad guy. But it's interesting, dare I say it, depth for this kind of movie. Because I didn't recognize it from other movies that I, that I've done it before. I thought I was maybe it is old hat, but the movie has before set itself up well enough for that that moment that that exchange to be very interesting, where you tilt your head a little bit and go, "Huh, right, good movie, good movie." You're doing work as a movie now, not a kung fu movie that uh, with some scenes around the kung fu. I think Yuma Ping is patient as well, uh, like t- taking his time to get uh, to the places he wants to. He isn't. Uh, uh, one of those like itchy directors who just throws action at us just uh, to make us forget about uh, weaknesses elsewhere. I think uh, I think I'm seeing a filmmaker emerging here. Or what do you think? Looking at Yumo Ping, like drunken mastering Yumo Ping versus Legend of a Fighter Yumo Ping, for instance. Is there a difference? You think? I I, I think you can definitely see di- you know different growth in terms of the storytelling. Um, again, I do feel this is a little bit imbalanced, and that you know we we see. Maybe um, 
changes in his style uh, going forward, especially in terms of some of the choreography. I mean, some of the choreography here does feel a little bit more in the old school camp, though they do at times try some some interesting new stuff. But yeah, I, I do agree with your point on that that scene with that character. I mean, the character in question is a bully named Bolando, which I think is the most appropriate name for a bully ever. <laughs> it just it's, it sounded so so appropriate. And he's sort of the typical, you know, town bully of a, he's like, you know, his father's somebody important. And for them to make that choice, it's because you've seen this character type before throughout the 70s, right? The the sort of haughty town bully, the father's a magistrate or somebody rich or something, and he can, you know, do no wrong. And he can't really do anything for himself, but he's got thugs around him that you know, can do his fighting for him. I mean, you know, he's usually got a little bit of skill, but he's got an even larger mouth. So you have that character archetype here. And I think they probably said, you know, we always see this come up where the character first beats up on the hero and then later gets beaten up by the hero, but not killed. And then he comes back to be a thorn, you know, in the plot even further down the road. So why not change it up? Why not, you know, have this character established that, you know, stop the problem in its tracks before it gets any further. So I think that was an interesting choice. And it it, it does make you sort of question a little bit about the, the character, you know, Kong Ho-san. Is he good or is he, you know, is he a villain? Sort of questioning the motivations and the relationship to that point. And that gives it some depth. It doesn't make it as two-dimensional as a character we might have encountered in the past. No one ever in this movie, I think, laughs like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> like, so, for, so automatically we're dealing with depth here, obviously. But no yeah. one, there's no tropes like that in here, which is always refreshing. And I also like, by the way, that Long Gaian's portrayal of fucking Gap, or rather the writing for the character, sorry, it seems to evolve him into a milder version of his father, where he, compared to his father a little bit, shows tolerance and understanding. He's not as stern. Uh, you know, at one point, uh, a fighter he defeats wants to kill himself, but he says that that's that's out of the question. You don't need to to do that. And and I think there's also a little little, little touching scene later on in the movie between Langayan and uh, Philip Coe, who plays him in older years as well, because he has gone behind his back to learn the family style. And when the father finds that out, you'd expect uh, him to just dish out you know verbal and physical punishment. But he doesn't. He, uh, you know, says to his ancestors, you know, they're at the altar and says, that, you know, he's now my successor. And I thought that was a nice subtle moment where the father internalizes maybe his disappointment, but externalizes that this is okay. This is uh, maybe what I wanted, but uh, ultimately, maybe not exactly the path I wanted towards naming my successor, but my, my son now is. And those moments... Do do stick with you, man. Uh, you don't expect it out of a kung fu movie necessarily, but this shows that Yumo Ping certainly, again, uh, Lao Galong had these dramatic like beats in them. And get this, and this is my final point on it for now: understated, not melodramatic, understated. <laughs> Look at that, Hong Kong cinema being understated. Indeed, th- there is a scene where he's sort of standing in front of the family placards and the. They've got this mantra for the school, which is, you know, basically translated out as, you know, no, uh, you know, no teaching outsiders is one of the one of the main main rules. You know, he 
looks at it, he gets angry, and he you know basically punches it into into uh, disintegrated splinters. And interestingly, I mean, this is in the nineteen you know nineteen eighty two. We have this film. Those kind of attitudes, and if you've seen a movie like um, the Dragon, the Bruce Lee story with Jason Scott Lee, you you also have those attitudes, you know, showing up in, in that film. And those that's a very real thing. And that there are people that still carry that attitude today. I, I've you know had a couple personal experiences where you know there are people who have that mindset that if you are interested in traditional Chinese martial arts and you're an outsider, that that's not something that some people think is appropriate, right? Um, and, you know, that, that kind of argument, that kind of criticism still exists in, you know, traditional martial arts circles today. I'm not sure if, um, you know, some of your other uh, guest hosts, people like Mike Leader and others who've, you know, moved in those circles in both film and stunt work, but also in, in actual martial arts training, I, I, they may have stories they've come up with because I, I did, you know, encounter a l- little bit of that in places uh, when I was in Hong Kong. And it's just mind boggling that, you know, you, you see these things represented in film and you think, OK, well, you know, today it's a, you know, it's a different world. It's a globalized world. But no, it's, you know, just like, I guess, any kind of uh, attitude towards people who are different or or tradition or things like that. Mm. Um, there are still some people who have that, you know, kind of sensibility. And I'm not here to, you know, argue against that and, and you know, call them racists or anything like that. I mean, they have their thinking and they're entitled to it. I just find it amazing that um, that still is is a predominant feature. No, I wouldn't say predominant. That's, that's wrong. I think, mo- you know, a lot of the schools, you can find them online, you can find them on Facebook, that are established in Hong Kong, you know, they'll welcome you. And it, they're very, very capitalistic, right? But there are still some that would would have that attitude. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I, I know too little of it. I'm not. Uh, I'm not here to argue for or against that. But uh, it, it's always a shame, though, if someone is irrationally stuck in his or her ways. You know, when yeah. opening up your comfort zone a little bit might not be devastating to your character or family or with this case you know your martial arts style or whatever but uh, again i'm i'm, uh, I'm not uh, condemning uh, either choice here as i said the second half it is it, it contains good set pieces but it is a bit spotty it seems like uh fucking gap did this portray this fucking gap did this let's portray that as well but it's uh, it's not done on like a big epic scale or anything uh, you know Langayan's fight with uh, uh, it's a russian character isn't it uh, if i remember correctly he's a he's a russian boxer and i think this is a little bit of a deviation from the written history because i think in at least what's known and in print is that it was a wrestler uh from russia that he was supposed to fight but there's even there's even some some thought that maybe that never happened some people some articles i guess have claimed that the wrestler actually left town that the two of them never actually had a confrontation. Um, but here it's, it's a boxer and it's a very, it's not like in the Jet Li movie where it's like this long, long drawn out, uh, sequence. And it's not like, uh, it's like an underground boxing club for heaven's sake. Yeah, basically, you know, it's like fight club, except we don't talk about fight club. Right. And it's not even, you know, it's, it's not even anything as overly dramatized as the, uh, it man two fight scene with, uh, Mr. Twister, right, which is uh, very much loud and in your face. 
it's actually just a very sort of small, tiny segment. I wouldn't even say it lasts more than, you know, a couple minutes. And then we're on to more of the story. It's the week, it's all solid, but it's the weaker aspects versus the way more solid first half. I mean, there's great build up in the, uh, in the Guangong performance that goes on as Nongayan prepares to fight uh, a Japanese character. And there's some great intensity and great editing. In reality, you don't need a long fight to show him overpowering his opponent. It's all about context and build up, and that that's all fine. But he gets the moments right. But it isn't that it isn't nearly the interesting part of uh, this story for me. The interesting part is when he starts to close the bag on what was established in the first half between Fokun Gap's character, another actor, but now Longayan and when Karata returns. That's what makes it memorable for me so um and, and even as i said the kung fu comedy sequence that you mentioned it's all great young clan energy but it definitely doesn't belong i like you i love yun chung yan i think he's a funny 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 man and i love he can just burst on screen and go hey hey, hey. <laughs> <You know? laughs> i mean i think in Taoising drunk god i think he comes in on a little Call mouse car <laughs> and just go. I'm here, I've arrived. Boom, let's have fun. So it works because of that reason, but you know, you can easily cut it out. But without spoiling it, I mean, the dramatic intent for 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 the finale, and uh, it, it's it's at an atmospheric lead up to the end, you know, you see. You know, he fights Karata, we can say that. I mean, it's sort of obvious. But uh, Karata is playing, you know, the instrument, whatever instrument it is. And Langayan, you know, bows to him and the editing gets intense because he's conflicted too. He doesn't want to do this. He wants. He doesn't want to be there. And all that is super cinematic. I'm, I was really impressed. And the choreography, I can say the same thing as I did a while back. That it's so terrific, detailed, clearly shot. And the exchanges also means something so it's sort of raw and intense without being melodramatic uh, and i think uh, and i'm definitely not going to spoil this i'm just going to say this you, you'll get it but i think the final sort of tally b- before he walks out of the building um that uh, reveal uh, concerning the jade i think that was an effective sad reveal too and uh, i didn't expect that out of a kung fu movie at this time Certainly not from Yuma Ping, and I think he rose to the occasion. So, I mean, a good 70% of this movie works perfectly, almost perfectly. And then there's some choppy stuff in there that's all watchable and better than most genre efforts out there. But uh, the, the the stuff you sort of remember from Fiel as being great, you know, fighting with the Westerners and wrestlers and what have you, it's not really what's memorable here. What's memorable here is uh, the story build-up and uh, how he closes the bag on that story. So I think that's uh, that's how I, I like to end my notes. But uh, I'll give give you the floor, Paul. Uh, what do you want to talk about, Tels? One point on uh, the the Yun Cheng Yan sequence. I mean, as a comedic sequence, it, it is great because you get uh, a certain sequence with a cigar that ends up going in a certain place and then into another place. That's just, I mean, it's really funny. And and the whole time he's fighting, he's basically just smoking his pipe on his opponent and his opponent's getting burned and and it's part of that sort of creative energy where you know they were kind of sitting around and just saying what can we do that's just 
wacky and and hasn't been done before and no one slips into cow dung and makes that like that's all we got that's the comedic goal we got no like the thing where he he uh, traps the pipe into uh, uh, Fong Hakon's suspenders and then it hits him into in in the face like a propeller like that's all great man I mean you you gotta capture that and bring energy as you shoot it most martial arts comedy filmmakers they just sort of shot it and hope for the best and we're part of the genre now hurrah yeah. but certainly they weren't capable of trying some of them the young clan or all of them i mean and you're ping at the helm they were capable and by extension as we get into the, the final fight i i think here one of the areas of growth too is in a 70s film early 70s film to mid 70s what you would have seen would have been the villain character basically just doing his evil laugh and then getting more and more desperate by the end as as the young hero's techniques uh, begin to overpower him. And then there'd be like a final strike and a freeze frame, right? And that would be it. The end, fuck off. <laughs> Go home. <laughs> you know, the end, no, no, no credits even, right? Sometimes not even uh, sometimes not even the final strike is on screen. I've seen movies that where you know he's going to hit and then boom, the end, bye. <laughs> That's it. But here they, you know, they do have the sensibility... Uh, to continue the narrative forward, to give sort of a mini epilogue, a sense of conclusion. So so again, this is kind of like a bridge film between the old style and moving into further into the 80s. The interesting thing that I did notice in the fight scene between, you know, the, the two characters, that once uh, Leung Karyen switches to his new style... And correct me if I'm wrong, but we never really get a training montage of him learning this new style. It just sort of comes from out of the blue, right? I think so, yeah. If, if it was there, it was super quick. Yeah, I think I think it might have been something that got cut in, in initially or something. Cause, but, but he has this new style, and part of this new style enables him to literally run along the walls, Matrix style. And so you're seeing the, you know, what, what you see uh, Trinity do, uh, you know, an, over a decade later in the Matrix movies or so, you, you're, you're actually seeing these characters do. Obviously, we're not using uh, the cameras of the era and, and the, the effect is not quite as good, but you're basically seeing that thing done here in this film. Uh, and I just thought, wow, OK, so he's had this idea in his mind all going all the way back here and possibly even further back. Yeah, yeah, it was a little late, late introduced. Uh, it wasn't even built, so, you know, in the genre they build it up through the training sequences, and often before the final strike or whatever, you know, especially if someone crushes someone's testicles, you got to cut back to the training sequence where they crush a nut or something during the training sequence, and then visually show it like that. But no, they, they didn't really do that uh, here. You know, there's just a, one of these sort of observations of maybe relative effects that he would have in his mind and build upon in future films. Uh, right on. Any other notes before we do the availability? Not nothing really substantial. But if you do look at the box office numbers on this uh, over at the Hong Kong Movie Database, um, it has a box office of just um, under Hong Kong two million, about one point eight million. Which I guess it only ran for about a week. Uh, not a super box office success, particularly when you consider that, as we talked about last time, uh, Aces Go Places in this same year had around 26 million. So there you can have a little bit of a point of comparison as to the financial intake between the two films in these in the same year. 
Yes, seasonal corporation. I mean, they they struck you know box office gold with their martial arts movies, uh, but they, they were also uh, you know branching out, trying to do quite wildly different movies. Um, you know, the Butterfly Murders. We're going to eat you, Chihax first. Two movies. They're from seasonal, and they're they're certainly not cookie cutter like I've seen this one hundred times before, <laughs> and things like that. But seasonal obviously didn't go under because we still had their breakout internationally with a No Retreat, No Surrender, and the likes, and they they started to do really good uh, international, but still using a Hong Kong style of a certain movies uh, type of productions you know one of the No Retreat No Surrender movies I forget if it's two or three I think it's three the one with uh, Keith Vitale and uh, Lauren Avedon I think is uh, a great example of uh, making it in English but making it with the Hong Kong style in mind as I think uh, so seasonal wasn't done for a good uh, for a good uh, 15 years or whatever they, they were still producing stuff so they, this might have been a failure for them is my point but uh, uh, MCU still had still had vision for for the future. Certainly. One final point on the music here too. If you are a bit of a Chinese music aficionado, you will f- hear a lot of more traditional, classic Chinese music on, on the soundtrack. You know, who knows if they lifted it or they had the rights to it. But things like uh, Daring General, which gets featured in many uh, Stephen Chow films like Kung Fu Hustle and others later. You, you know, if you're familiar with those films, you'll recognize the tunes used here. Kenneth, you mentioned that when they go into the final fight, that uh, Kurata is actually playing a pipa, and I think it's a pipa, and and he the tune he's playing is um, called uh, Ambush from Ten Sides. It's another sort of famous uh, classical Chinese military song. It's used all over the place. So, you know, if you're a bit of a Chinese music buff, you can pay attention. You'll definitely recognize uh, a lot of the soundtrack. No riffs from uh, Star Wars yet or, or none of that. Final fight. No, no, no. Stop it. They're, they're pretty much sticking with, uh, with their own soundtracks for, for the film. It did, it did sound like that. Indeed. indeed. Uh, okay, then. As for availability, there's no Hong Kong DVD and the best viewing option, really, if you want to source it... A Hong Kong viewing option would be the old partially cropped um, from 235 scope to about 185 uh, Laserdisc, uh, which is what we watched. Uh, a UK special edition DVD was released early in the life of the label Hong Kong Legends, but it was part of the early batch where they cropped movies to fit widescreen TVs, right? So there would be no bars. Uh, and uh, there was some explanation from them, including to me directly. Because uh, these were done for the seasonal movies. Drunken Master was that way. Snake and Eagle Shadow was that way. And, and this. And they said, uh, well, these prints had permanent damage on the sides. So we had to do this. And I don't buy that for a second. Because uh, not for all free. <laughs> it was just the early 2000s. They were afraid of people wondering what those funny black bars were on their already widescreen TVs. And and also, uh, I've seen framing versus that DVD and this Laserdisc. And this Laserdisc still has more on the sides uh, in terms of framing. So I, I prefer to watch this. Uh, that DVD is also in Mandarin only. And uh, I mean, it, I'm sure it's workable. But there is some, you know, it seems suited for Cantonese. Certainly fits the timeline in uh, in terms of uh, what language was used uh, or dialect was used in a Hong Kong uh, movie in 1982. So, uh, but uh, you, you're probably it's probably easier to find that uh, UK DVD versus the Laserdisc. But uh, do pick it up if you uh, if you see it. All right, buddy, let's take a musical break and listen to uh, how again how the uh, wonderful Aces Go Places theme sounds the second time around. <laughs> <laughs> 
as we review Aces Go Places 2 from 1983. And bear in mind, like, they did five of these and all of them were successful. And they stopped for, probably because of Cinema City, folded. That's probably the only reason they stopped, because uh, otherwise we would have had uh, uh, maybe, uh, you know, an Aces Go Places 7 by the time 1997 came around. And then we wouldn't have had Aces Go Places 97, <laughs> that other, you know, the Alan Tam, Tony Long Aces Go Places. Would have been a good thing. I know, I know. <laughs> Oh, that was that, that was intolerable. I, I, I saw it for a show recently, um, and uh, dear lord, no. And, you know, I, I might cut this out, but I'm going to ask anyway. Do you think that was made as an Aces Go Places movie originally, that Raymond Wong one? Or do you think they sort of just put the theme in in post and call it this? No, I think they just slapped the label on there and to get people in the, in the seats. Intolerable, but uh, yeah, that's a story for another time. But uh, anyway, we'll take a musical break and we'll be back, as I said, to review Aces Go Places 2. So sit tight and we'll be back. And welcome back in the review for the second half of the show is Aces Go Places 2 from 1983. Me and Paul review the first part. We're back here for the second part. And plot from Hong Kong Movie Database. It's not really the most extensively plotted movie. I can really find a good plot per se not that i wrote a good plot but anyway i'll 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 pick this one so here we go more hijinks with king kong played by sam hoy baldy or albert played by carl macca and nancy played by sylvia chang this time the villain is known as white gloves who is seeking revenge for the defeat of black gloves in the original along for the ride is an clint eastwood impersonator who is called filthy harry but is actually addressed like the character from the Sergio Leone Dollars trilogy for some reason, because all Clint Eastwood in one, essentially. Uh, Long for the Ride is also a Japanese uh, gang gang boss, played by Yasuke Karata again, and his uh, conniving sister, who continually dupes King Kong into committing acts of robbery just because she's a woman, and that's enough to dupe. Uh, King Kong and along for the ride is also an FBI agent played by Choi Hak and we'll, we'll, we'll get to talk of Choi Hak I'm sure uh, in three minutes beep up beep up beep up <laughs> but anyway uh, Paul short opinion for now of uh, Aces Go Places 2 before we go over the review go with a bigger budget I think but I think some of the freshness of the original is lost to make way for big explosions and special effects yeah, I'm, it's still my second favorite of the one. Because I'm weak for everything that goes on here, really. I mean, cue the familiar theme music, cue radio control helicopters, cue robots, biking car stunts. Again, an assassin called Feel Free Harry. I mean, I'm on board, and the energy is highly infectious and sort of out of this world, especially when Eric Tsang, the director, and the special effects crew stages what seems like a, a reel of sp- special gadgets and robots action. But more importantly, Choi Hak steals the movie as an escaped mental patient uh, claiming to be an FBI agent. Did you did you take notice of who the uh, fixer Filthy Harry was? It's it's uh, it's Henry Kissinger. Okay, of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> and they, they, there's a line they they actually get the subtitle wrong where he says, you know, I something about, uh, you know, making Nixon look good or something, but they translate it out as Nick 
and I'm like, well, okay, they, you know, I, I, that was a, I guess, un on on the end of when he said it. But yeah, it's supposed to be. It's a it's a lookalike actor, uh, basically portraying Hen- Henry Kissinger for whatever reason. I guess he was, you know, still a a popular figure in the early '80s, and uh, they were having a bit of pop culture fun. Yeah, as you mentioned for uh, during the review of the first movie, it really takes cues from a wide variety of places, not just James Bond. So I'm sure Cinema City and and Raymond Wong and everybody were, you know, trying to cram some things that possibly are amusing in one. And I mean, that is amusing. That Okay, Henry Kissinger, uh, Filthy Harry, and uh, he talks like this, you know, because he is impersonating Clint Eastwood. Um, you know, I look like I look like five of Clint Eastwood's characters. Yes, that's how we do it. But uh, it's all good. I mean, they could have repeated the formula, but in a lazy manner. But I think, and you always want to do bigger. I, I you know, I, when a studio produces something that was a hit, you always want to be bigger and better. But that's the standard studio cliche. But I think Cinema City had more in them than most in terms of a vision for spectacle. And I think there's still strong chemistry out of the trio even though Sylvia Chang is actually not that much in this movie which I think is a little bit of a sad negative on the movie it's a tragedy a tragedy oh, she's a, she is awesome I mean she she gets like the big baseball bat scene thankfully as she makes a mock on the movie that way but I think she's uh, it's more of a duo movie now which isn't the most pleasing aspect for me but but there are sequel concerns there always are but I think uh, they might not have it's not better than one right uh, but I, I still think they they had a vision for how to make two work, you know, even if it's just spectacle vision. But as a matter of fact, I think they had uh, a vision for how to make the character banter fly as well, because it's not just a technical showcase. This, right? I mean, it's all it's, you know, it might start that way, but for a good one or two reels, it's just the characters acting goofy with each other. So it's not con- it's not technically concerned with it's not concerned with one thing only right it, it, it wants to sort of be true to the characters but also be true to the spectacle or what do you think yeah and it does do, does exactly that it builds upon the quirks of the characters i mean uh baldy becomes a, a bit more over the top although if i remember from the first one he was like a detective from the u.s right coming to assist and and that now he's like i guess fully integrated into the uh, Hong Kong police force which is fine we get we get the push forward of his relationship uh with Sylvia Chang's character you know policewoman ho and you know that's that becomes sort of a staple of of this series going forward too which i think is great and and i i just wish there was more Sylvia Chang uh in this movie i don't i don't remember i mean she's certainly she's in all was she in five? Oh, never mind. We'll, we'll see that later. But uh, certainly in three and four, there's the kid too. So I mean, there, there, there's a family unit on display there. But I, I, I'd be curious to see if she was relegated to more support for three and four. I mean, I've seen them multiple times. That's my recollection. Although it's been a while since I've seen them, it it seems like she gets uh, more and more of a just a momentary cameo in the later films. She certainly had things to do, though. Yeah, she was going places. So damn filmmaker. There were, if there was an ace going a place, it was definitely <laughs> her. Uh, as she as she leapt out of these films into doing lots of other stuff. I for for me here, I think I, I wanted to see more of the interaction of the three of them on screen. I think it was at its best when the three of them were on screen, and the stuff that we got instead. I mean, bigger explosions, more gadgets. 
um, more chase scenes. It was all fine. But my favorite moments were the character moments when when they were going back and forth at it. Yeah, to- totally, totally. Um, go- going back to a technical moment, or you got a pre-credits, um, you know, pre-credits mayhem here with the uh, with uh, the robot uh, stalking assassination attempt on uh, King Kong's life, and I'm sure that robot that assembled worked poor technically right in terms of like uh, getting that thing to flip up getting those things to attach to each other but through edits you got an impressive looking possibly rip off robot in design of some kind of japanese property i'm not too familiar with this side of tokusatsu entertainment right the way i can sort of like ah i know where that robot is from i know where that robot is from like i barely knew cayman rider up till now i know cayman rider is not a robot he's a grasshopper but still that, that part of tokusatsu entertainment I'm, I'm still getting familiarized with uh, is that something that uh, has been part of your viewing habits throughout the years watching uh super sentai shows with uh, big robots fighting each other and stuff uh, yeah, to some extent, and even to a bigger extent, some of the uh, cartoons from the, the 70s. I mean, definitely you can see that what what you have is you have these models. So it was interesting because we ended the first film with sort of these remote-controlled cars, and we begin the second film with these sort of remote-control helicopter-esque models that come in, and then they form together and assemble very much, you know, a point back to Japanese pop culture. The design... At least sort of the head design was very reminiscent for me of uh, some of the Shogun Warrior designs from Japanese cartoons. Not a specific copy of any one singular design. But this is an interesting thing because, I mean, as much as a big a sci-fi geek as I am, I mean, this film is going full-on sci-fi almost in, in a sense. And even more so later, you get this robot and it joins a very sort of small elite list of Hong Kong films with robots with things like Gen Y Cops, uh, I Love Maria. Oh, but, 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 let, 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 let's reel it back in. Reel it back in here. Gen Y Cops, I, I couldn't sit through it, right? I, I bailed during the dog dialogue that that is in <laughs> Chen had with whoever. What's the robot in Gen Y? Physical or silly CG? No, physical. I had a, a classmate who was working as a production assistant, I think, at the time, or assistant producer, I, I can't remember, on the film. And she had pictures from the uh, office, and they still have the physical mock-up of the big robot at the end um, in a corner of the office. No one and wants it. She, she actually brought over the, uh, I can't remember the name of it, it was the, the, the one that they said looked like a Hong Kong trash can. Um, she brought it over to the to the school, and it was like the school mascot while we were studying there. Um, and she, it was just kind of like stuck over in the corner for a while. I'm not sure what happened to it after we graduated. But yeah, it was very much a physical. They they went with, uh, phys, unlike Kung Fu Cyborg, which I think was all like very bad PlayStation-style CG. But yeah, I mean, I, I love robots, and, and I love sci-fi stuff. And so, you know, you can count the number of robots that are out there in Hong Kong films. Um, and even you know. Robotrix isn't that in- impressive, dude, because it, it, one sequence involves, like, Western guys dressed in sort of silver clothes, and, they're, like, it's a robo-expo, right? There's a latter sequence where they repair, like, Amy Yip's character, so they have, like, wires and shit uh, poking out of her, but it's not it's not super impressive. It's a Category 3 movie, after all, so there's, uh, yeah. there's some other stuff on the agenda. Uh, but I, I I do love the pre-credit sequence. You know, there's an impressive amount of stunts here as well. Uh, Sam Hoy jumps through, albeit he's he's wearing a helmet, but he still jumps through this uh, movie glass. You know, uh, does his own stunt, 
it looks uh, it looks all cool, man. And uh, you know, I wrote in my notes, missile baseball. <laughs> you know, instead of frog baseball beeps about it. So there, there's a good will set up earlier for me in movie one about when the theme kicks in and the score kicks in and we get a, a tone and an energy that I, I, I'm, I'm weak for and maybe too weak for and I'll take my critic's cap off, you know. But um, but the stunts are elevated. I mean, uh, one, one of the um, stunt riders, maybe a part of Blackie Co's team or Blackie Co himself, who flies over the hood of the car and uh, into into the pavement? I mean, that looks fairly painful, and uh, it, you know that long jump from um, high jump from the long bus onto uh, onto the street, and uh, seemingly that rider stayed on two wheels after hitting the pavement. All looking uh, fairly impressive. You know, you can put yourself into eighties context, right? This was for Hong Kong a fairly new feel. Still, vehicular stunts like this was not commonplace and cookie cutter so and also those gadgets i'm sure would make every little boy in the cinema soil himself you know i want that <laughs> it you know they knew how to sort of push those buttons a little bit like look at this cool stuff and they, they make it part of a whole but i do you know long for that balance between spectacle and character uh, meaning character banter and you know we obviously get that but uh, it takes a long while before they introduce Carl Macca to be honest because you have the first sequence credits boom aces go places to welcome and then there's still no Carl Macca I, I, I almost thought like are they doing something to scare audiences of and fans of Carl Macca to death that he possibly is not in this movie because he's not in it until a good 15-20 minutes into it you know so uh, I, I sort of missed it. Not sure it's particularly clever, but he do he, he does get introduced, obviously. So any any notes on good old Carl and uh, the wedding at hand? Yeah, but before we get right into that, I want to jump back to the the bike stunt that you mentioned, where basically he's riding off an overpass and ends up landing on basically a line of double decker bus buses, right? That are um, and because it's kind of shot in slow mo, it, you know you can't really get the sense of the speed of the buses but you know it doesn't look like they're going extremely fast and you can kind of see that they've got a track across the top of them but it's fine but he goes off that ramp on the top of the buses and then lands on the street so it's a double jump basically one long take of this double jump which is very impressive for the time and was reminiscent of me of a similar jump i think they did it onto a train right in police story three super cop uh yes uh using wires mind you but uh still uh they they did you know but that's like a decade later and so here they're doing uh you know a stunt like this it's a guy on a motorcycle and it's very impressive for the for the time and um you can actually see when he hits the street it's like you're surprised i was surprised that the suspension on that bike actually held out it nearly exactly because the bike sort of that force makes those that those suspensions like really they they, they press together so i i was thinking for sure that man is going to fall. I mean, he stayed he stayed on his bike, you know, for the shot. But it didn't seem like he was like, and then was going to fall. You know, and, and they cut before that. So uh, kudos to Blackie Coe's uh, team, um, or Blackie Coe himself, because he, he's in the credits, and he was known to be expert or very knowledgeable about uh, bike stunts. Over wedding. Uh, introduction of Karl Macca. I mean, we've established we like Karl Macca. I've established that I'm not sure how he managed to get away with being so loud and so, you know, broad on screen and rarely, if ever, be annoying. 
and that speaks to his skill, obviously. But uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, about Carl Macca, or if you have any notes on on the wedding sequence at hand here, which uh, because the wedding goes wrong a little bit. <laughs> no, it's great, and the thing that the thing that made me kind of laugh unsuspectingly was they're both wearing wigs. <laughs> you know, he's got like this super fake wig on, but she does too because she she's got like you know maybe she's it looks like she has very long hair in the scene, and then we realize nope, she's still got her sort of cropped short hair later on. And it was just funny seeing the two of them coming down the aisle in 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 these you know wigs of the period as it as it were. Yeah, it's great too because he has the wig in the, in the first scene in the first movie, and you'd think like he'd overcome that insecurity. And now he's marrying someone, so she doesn't care that the fact that he's bald. But for some reason, either someone or he convinced himself that oh, at least for the wedding, I gotta wear the wig. And he's also itchy and shit, so he like scratches it. It made me think of a child who doesn't want to be dressed in a particular set of clothes, yeah. like squirming, <laughs> itchy. So I thought that was adorable. That's uh, that's uh... the build-up to this too is that King Sam Hoy's character, King Kong. Hey, he's he's met up with this girl who's going to serve as kind of his femme fatale for the film, played by an actress uh, Wong Ting Han, who really I didn't do much after this. I guess maybe she just went on to do other things or. Because uh, she only has two credits that I could find, mm-hmm. but she plays Juju, and she ends up tricking him into accidentally robbing a bank unknowingly. The, as the police are chasing him, they chase him into this police wedding, and so he's there as the best man, but his sort of uh, unitard uh, tuxedo <laughs> yeah. that he's created for himself has shrunk because he got it wet. <laughs> and and he's you know standing there uh, as the vows are being given and he whisper he's whispering into Carl Mack's ear and Carl Mack is responding to him and at the same time you've got dialogue coming from a cameo by Raymond Wong who's the priest and it se- it seems like you know the banter that he's having is being directed back at the priest and and his bride to be I, I love the outburst because yeah it's lovely outburst that in English you know as uh, Sam Hoy you know uh, recaps what's been going on <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm dealing with this now. So he's like, he's uh, he's not concerned with the wedding. And then when Raymond Wong says whatever he says, shouts out, and he says in the subtitles, "What a load of bullshit!" Yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's that's just perfect timing, man. And that speaks to Carl Macca's sort of energy is always right for me. I never thought it was annoying. He has the kind of energy that Dean Sheck really never got right, despite trying his very hardest. But Carl Macchia had, had something about him. Um, can't really explain it, uh, to be honest. But uh... As I'm watching him in this film, even more so than the first film, he almost has a level of energy that you would find for stage. Many people would look at that and say, I think many directors would say that that's too much energy for the camera. When you're doing a stage performance, you have to be able to have your energy carry to the very farthest rows um, out. But with when the camera's on you, that's considered to be far too much. But he seems to be doing that, you know, to great comedic effect. And I think it really works very well. He's, in particular, he's inspired in these movies, I think. And I mean, you, you get further sequences where King Kong is hiding from, uh, you know, or, or uh, Baldi is hiding King Kong from Sylvia Chang. So you deal with you know hiding someone in the bathroom or cupboard type of humor but that back and forth it's not clever writing but it's uh it's successful situations uh you know uh, he's still wearing his tux and then silver chan comes into the bathroom and only way he can hide 
King Kong is by turning his shower on and taking a shower and he's standing there in his tuxedo. What are you doing? I'm showering. With your clothes on? Yeah, I want to watch those two. And I thought, I want to watch those two was a brilliant comeback for such an old setup. Such an old joke. Hiding Like that type of farce is actually very big here. They usually put on summer shows, like outdoor summer shows across the country using that particular type of comedic style. And I think it's intolerable. But... Here it works, man. I, I think, uh, think, th- and they get they get a very naughty joke in here about uh, about uh, Sidra Shang's breasts and the buttons and and the, exactly <laughs> the, the redirect of where the buttons were actually being taken off. I think is is great. It's 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 almost for me reminiscent of uh, vaudevillian style back and forth that you might see in uh, a Laurel and Hardy exchange. Or you know, but but uh, you know you probably wouldn't get that burlesque. Uh, you know, back then, but here they've kind of taken it to that level, and it's it's it works very well. I think it's beautiful because uh, Sam Hoy says, "Like I only saw her on button two buttons," and Colmaca calculates like one, two, hey, like realizing he's seen too much. <laughs> so yeah, it's immature, yes, it, but it's sort of classic back and forth banter between performers liking each other clearly, and uh, there's no feeling of. Um, repetition as such um and as much as i like especially the latter real robots they, this when they all get together or if we only have sam and carl on screen it's all um it's all great because one thing it isn't either well, well it isn't a great story but it isn't one of those hong kong movies that just uh, throws together throw in a tiny script and then structure some skits around it and maybe some action like akin to what the inspector west skirt series for instance did or in a ton of movies it was just clearly just strung together really badly and uh, made up of uh, comedic skits but uh, i i've never got that feeling from the aces go places movie so or what do you think there are a couple times where i think it's very much it feels like a set piece or a, a skit that might have been shoehorned in but for the most part i think that it feels very organic and i i it has a good sense of pacing and a good sense of flow with this film in particular i thought that there may have been one too many chase scenes because we've got uh, chase scenes in the beginning on the motorcycle. We then get further motorcycle chases later on. You have a bike chase, which is actually very well done, sort of a you know uh, a bicycle chase not, as opposed to a motorcycle chase. And that's interesting because, again, here too, I'm thinking, well, we've seen motorcycle chases in movies. We've seen car chases in movies. I'm not sure I've seen a bike a bicycle chase done to the extent with what the kind of stunt work they were doing here, which I thought was very, very good. Um, and then again, a car chase, big car, the sort of uh, car chase by the end. So Yeah, it's, it's, there's certainly a lot. I, I enjoyed, enjoyed it all, even if I don't single out uh, it all. And uh, it's all, by the way, as we said, directed by Eric Tsang. And uh, he's clearly, you know, and Cinema City, the whole entire thing, they're clearly focusing on all these aspects that we've... Um, that we've talked about you know banter and spectacle for instance but there are some fun stylish flourishes here uh, there's a sequence where king kong and albert are contemplating on how to sort of storm a room then they're talking about it where we get to see it on screen as well and see it fail for instance they storm a room with gangsters and they get shot in bloody fashion you know gunshot wounds to the stomach dead no nope, we're not going to do that what if you do this instead? Go in through the window and we see that played out uh, before us, which uh, was a um, decent little stylish uh, touch um, because Eric Tsang, the director, he isn't necessarily noticeable as such. You just sort of go with the flow, but uh, this was a little bit of a 
stylish uh, st- standout uh, as uh, as the movie rolls on. Uh, and and also I want to say that the pairing between Sam Hoy and Carl Mack, as great as it is, it isn't as fresh, obviously, and uh, it's not new anymore. But I, I think uh, it's all still strong, uh, all about the back and forth. It's all about that physical nature of acting, of course, the verbal nature of acting. And maybe for me, if I understood Cantonese, maybe this would be elevated, because I don't know if they place any emphasis on clever clever dialogue, clever puns or whatever, but it, it, it never seemed to be like that constantly anyway. And, uh, and, and and if I feel like the banter goes on for long, I, I'm always confident that it, it will log physical action and gadgets and stunts and stuff. Uh, and uh, Because it already proved, both movies did, proved adept at both, you know. And uh, so I, I, I never really, except for five, never really have, um, feel like there's a lull here or anything. But, but very fair point about... Uh, there's been more here, and maybe one or two sequences too many for uh, for a fairly long for a fairly long movie anyway. But I think it's you know it's expected. It's as as we've talked about in in other episodes with things like the Vegas to Macau series. Of course, you have to outdo the last one, and so what is the, the I think the expectation is that they felt that as a Chinese New Year film, they needed more explosions, they needed more action rather than more dialogue and you know more of the physical comedy to justify the existence of you know a bigger budget and uh, the expectations of the audience that's a good segue because you have in those movies uh, stars acting like loons and it doesn't work very well as you've established on prior shows here you have in this movie not a star acting like a loon but a director acting like a loon and it brings in for us to talk about one of my favorite things in the world Choi Hawk as an actor. <laughs> Choi Hawk on screen. Acting like a loon, not behind the scenes, because you know we know he can turn his sets into experiences. But when he's on screen, acting like a loon, which he often does, and, unless it's Final Victory, uh, that, uh, that movie he did with Eric. Not as fun. I like when he acts like a loon, but explain his role, Paul. Uh, what does uh, Choi Hawk do here? Well, I established he's an FBI agent, but uh, what, what are your notes on Choi Hawk's... Uh, Fantastic uh, two free scene cameo here. He kind of sets up a gag, you know, it's kind of a rule of three kind of gag. Um, And initially we are introduced to him. He introduces himself as an FBI agent and we quickly learn that actually he's just a mental patient who's escaped, who's pretending to be an FBI agent, which leads the duo into all kinds of trouble and a couple more stages down down the line. But what do you think of him? Do you think he's too much or do do you like when he uh, plays a loon on screen in the various movies? I think he's great. Uh, I always like seeing him on screen. And he continues to do this from time to time. I mean, I think even this year, earlier this year, he was uh, had a cameo in Stephen Chow's The Mermaid. Um, in Did a he really? Small wow. Role. Wow. Yes. He might have also been one of the old guys in The Bodyguard, the Sam O'Han yes. movie. Yes, he was. he was. Even a, he even had his own character poster. So yes, uh, he, him and Dean Check in Karl Macca. I always look forward to seeing him you know, in front of the screen as well as behind it. Um, although I think, of, arguably, uh, he's he's better behind the camera. I mean, it's good to see him in comedic roles like this. And I wouldn't mind seeing more, but I, I'd like him to have more directorial output, if anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, but, but it's sort of this time, and uh, then later, you know, I Love Maria, which was a starring role, and uh, along with uh, John Shum. But uh, I, I don't think he did it extensively since uh, during the Cinema City days, they put everybody in it. I think uh, even Eric Sang obviously has a cameo here. I thought that was Wong Jing first. 
And then I noticed it was Eric Chang. Don't know why I confused them. I'm not saying they're fat or anything. But it's like, he had the Wang Jing style haircut, and I, and because that threw me to at first, and I'm like, oh no, that's Eric. That's Eric. What's Chang. he doing here? Get him out of here. Oh, it's Eric. That's fine. He can be here. But yeah, there's some wonderful uh, that that rule of three is uh, you know him as an FBI agent saying in three minutes you're gonna hear beep up beep up, and you're thinking like, oh, he's got an operation going on, like it's well timed. But no, it's his caretakers. Their response time is always three minutes. And Choi Hak is the one going beep up, beep up as they take him away. <laughs> and it's such a silly, silly thing, but I adore it to death. And they, you know, he says, like, yeah, I'm not only FBI, I'm Interpol, Gestapo, the Avengers. You know, I'm everything. <laughs> oh, boy. We do get some other interesting cameos in you know, a big film like this. Uh, you're going to have lots of cameos. We mentioned Raymond Wong. Uh, Tsui Hark, Eric Tsang. You also have a crossover by uh, Lee Kateng, who actually was, along with Kurata, was in The Legend of a Fighter. He was one of the Japanese challengers in that film, and he shows up as a, as a, I guess, like a gang boss in a, in a club, and a fight ensues with him. Um, so we get a little bit of action from him. And, of course, as Kenneth mentioned, Yasuaki Kurata is here. Um, although his role, I think, not quite as interesting as it was in Legend of the Fire. He's kind of like a a crime boss. He's the brother of Juju, who's the love interest for Sam in this film. Um, but perhaps the most anticipated, perhaps, cameo of the film is, of course, Charlie Cho. How can we go without mentioning Looking a Charlie so Cho cameo? Looking so damn young. It doesn't look like he sort of fits his suits yet. He wore suits for 99% of his movies, but uh, he just uh, he looks uh, like he's not really really ready yet to don the suit. Certainly not ready to be pervy yet on screen. Now, this is his fourth film. I think this is well before he started doing uh, Category 3 stuff. So, uh, And just a very small, I mean, he may be a minute... Uh, two minutes in total for for his role but it's always good to see him on the screen yeah at, at this time you know the the bigger roles he got was often like you know smarmy lawyers and things like that he's in police story one and two and i mean you detest him you really do i mean he's uh, one of those characters that you just want to punch and jackie chan certainly does he shatters his glasses uh, at the end of it and He's seen stuff like, uh, it's not this Wong Jing, there's a director called Wong Ying, with a Y at the beginning, called Return of the Demon, where I think Charlie Cho turns into a dog. It's one of those things, like, yeah, that's cool, that's all good fun, man. All good, supernatural, low-budget fun from Hong Kong. I liked the chase that, um, the, the backwards chase, where, where Sam Hoi and Carl McCann needs to drive a car in reverse. I think that's all caught very well. I And it's a great sight gag, as that car, I think it's the same sequence, that car gets... More beat up, but and reduced in size, and uh, like uh, the skeleton of the car. <laughs> Essentially, it's uh, gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and yet it's he's able to drive it. At first, it gets like it runs into the back of a truck, and the hood gets flipped up, and they end up having to drive backwards somehow. But then it gets, and and this is where the physics completely. You know, I mean, we we talked about robots and the sci-fi of it, but this is where we get into completely sort of Keystone Cops or cartoon style physics because they hit a lamp post or a sign post or something and the car just splits them on the middle and they're each going on one half of the car down sort of separate highways and it's a great sight gag you can very well very much see in some of the shots the the sort of secondary wheel because um, it's not completely concealed but it's it's completely overlookable and it's a fun funny sequence as the two of them are are kind of having some banter back and forth and then the car gets reduced even further 
or at least Carl Macca's section gets reduced even further as he uh, comes between a couple like uh, big truck lorries or something. And I wonder too if uh, because Cinema City were on multiple occasions importing um, foreign talent to uh, produce uh, produce action, and I wonder if. Uh, at this time, and I'm asking really everybody if Hong Kong really had ve- vehicle stunt experts like Bruce Law on the screen and firmly educated and confident to perform this, because Bruce Law certainly became and I think still is a go-to guy for vehicular stunts and what have you. But I wonder if at this time they had to import talent uh, for a sequence like this. Uh, it looks good though, well captioned and all of that, but uh, that's what Cinema City did. I mean, they even did the quirky thing of Till Death Do We Scare to bring in Tom Savini to do makeup effects. And Tom Savini wasn't, he was known for gore. So it was, and it wasn't a gory movie, it was a Hong Kong ghost comedy, but Cinema City still had sort of clout and money to to reach out to people and get acceptance to. Yeah, and this is a thing too where I think, we look back at the first film and they did have that final sequence of of car chases but a lot of what we see there is chases explosions i I recall that we talked a little bit about the flip uh alongside the car as well but here we actually get uh at least two maybe three different shots of the cars doing the side ride yeah you know where the cars will sort of flip up on two wheels and and continue going and uh, they go for some extended extended long shots here which i thought was pretty impressive and I, I was just thinking to myself, watching this, I'm thinking the same thing. You know, was this a case where some of the creatives like Zoe Hark and others would have gone out and contacted some stunt crews in Hollywood to come over and at the very least advise and maybe teach some of the stunt teams as, you know, they did with special effects, like you mentioned with Tom Savini or in Wars from the Magic Mountain and other films. Yeah, yeah, because Choi uh, had some Star Wars guys on on uh, Zoo Warrior, so, uh, so yeah, it wouldn't be out of the question. Uh, before we get to the robots, I just want to single out uh, Sylvia's best scene uh, with uh, Carl Mack guys when uh, him and Sam Hoy they're sort of undercover and trying to get in with uh, with uh, you know the the villains, the bull and his sister. And there's a restaurant scene where Carl Mack has his uh, arm around someone and uh, standing there and, uh, bo- you know, boasting, you know, and uh, Sylvia Chang is behind him because she's in the same restaurant and she's behind him and she is, he is livid. She's got a baseball bat and she's ready and he keeps rubbing it in without knowing it because he keeps talking of, I have permission to fool around. Like she doesn't mind action. That's what I like. Lots of it. <laughs> Carl Mack is just saying 1000% the wrong things. And he doesn't get obviously them doing like, look behind you, look behind you, winking, winking and stuff. But the best part is the baseball hit, the baseball bat hit actually happens. And it's brutal. <laughs> she essentially almost bashes his head in. And why not? Because he said all the wrong things. But again, Sylvia is uh, woefully underrepresented in this movie. And I don't quite like that, to be honest. Because she could obviously keep up and then some with uh, the male trio. So it was not like she was the odd one out or anything. Which I think is a shame. But, uh, you know, good good hit and uh, uh, a good scene and a well-deserved hit. Uh, but let's uh, talk of the uh, little bit about the centerpiece of it. I, I don't know how much to say about it. Uh, other than, uh, other than I, I love the big robot war scene they're essentially going in to retrieve diamonds for karata's character bull and they go into this room of uh well i don't know what to say really there's a room there's filthy harry he's got a big robot he's got weapons but king kong is an amazing inventor 
I'd say. Because we know he has gag um, gadgets, but I didn't know he had supremely technically evolved robots himself. And I don't know if it strays, strays from the reality of this movie, so to say, but... Man, they're robots. They're shooting missiles and lasers, man. I, I can't complain yeah. about any of this stuff. Or as Dr. Evil would say, lasers. Yeah, right. Freaking <laughs> lasers. <laughs> Sharks with freaking lasers on their heads. So uh, what do you think of this uh, centerpiece? That isn't the ending, but it's uh, quite a centerpiece for the movie, though. Yeah, I think it's it's it, it does serve as kind of the centerpiece of the film. It's very showy. It is a little bit of a repeat of the opening sequence. It's it's sort of like a Mark II version of the same robot. He's a little bit flashier. He's got a little bit more glass on him. You know, we do have this sort of robot face-off now. So instead of just him fighting Sam Hoy's character, Sam Hoy's got this little sort of suitcase robot that doesn't seem to fare too well. Um, but then he's got these mini robots that come out and sort of, sort of go all out. I mean, obviously this is, a again, a pop culture play to to robots and the idea of remote control things that were popular in this era and again the nod to Japanese designs the thing that kind of stuck out for me though was the the mini robots they are they're each kind of specialized to do different things it reminded me of the of a film that came out a few years later called batteries not included um, which I think was a Steven Spielberg produced thing um, that was kind of the same, you know, it had all these like little alien robots and they each had their sort of special function. Um, and here, here it is again, that these guys are, are playing with these ideas years before something like that would come to fruition. And it, I mean, technically it's not always super effective because, you know, and in some shots, they just look like these little toy models In other shots, when they start doing stuff, it's, it's very effective. I mean, and again, here we get, the laser effect, we get some things. I mean, again I'm, again, I'm thinking they must have brought in some advisors for some of that stuff because it's far more technical than I think we've seen in other Hong Kong films up to this point. I might be wrong, but I heard or read somewhere really quick once upon a time that there might have been, so I'm not going to state this as fact, Japanese advisors on, on this particular sequence. Mm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, memory serves me, if memory serves me correctly, that was it. And it might have made sense to turn to someone Japanese for this. I don't know, because they have that that experience working with models like this. Uh, but yeah, I suppose that see, this sequence is in its own way like very Japanese-tinted entertainment, but it is sort of cool. I mean, the, the robo-tactics of the, the big robo-tactic uh, versus the small robots utilizing their own tactics, it's... It's all good fun because it's a big robot versus little robots with guns and missiles. And, uh, you know, obviously the big one is it doesn't move much, but it fires a lot. But the other ones are just sort of frenzied, freaky little robots. Like, ding, 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 ding. The heads are spinning, but they have that arsenal in them as well. And uh, I don't know, who, what little boy or big boy wouldn't love this rapid frenzied sequence? You know, you got you know atari style sound effects and lasers and things go boom and their voice control as well which again makes this this movie elevated elevated reality goes to another reality because sam hoy's king kong apparently designed these and uh, to be voice controlled and he can because he's awesome the, the, the thing too that stands out a little bit for me is that i i mean i would have loved to have been in hong kong 
during the the year of release just to see if there were any sort of knockoff toys of these on, you know, and street corner toy shops or anything. In a Hollywood film of this nature, there absolutely would have been at least one or two toys to be sold. But that doesn't seem like it was something that the Hong Kong market was doing or even interested in doing. They just wanted to make films and they wanted, you know, the films to be entertaining. And there was no sort of thought of, oh, we have, well, we've got a robot, so we've got to market this robot and sell it to kids, right? There, there, was, there was no sense of that so much. Yeah, because I looked at those, some of them, and it didn't look like they were like store-bought and they just brought them to the set. They needed to be designed to do certain things. There must have been some original uh, design going on here for the, for the sake of the sequence. They seem to shoehorn in like products that might have been popular at the time that you could get and uh, and stuff you would like. You know, obviously there's a jetpack sequence at the end, which looks damn good actually. But uh, there's tiny bikes as well that they ride on that might have been available in 1983. So I I don't like it as much as one, but I think it's a playful spectacle, weak in some areas, mainly due to the fact that Sylvia Chang is is not present as much. But it's all good fun. It's, it's uh, my my second favorite. It's it, the series got a little bit weaker with three, four. I think is my third favorite because the Ringo Lamb tactics in that one makes it a little bit darker. <laughs> so I like that. Uh, I, I like that change of attack. And five, I just thought was flat for me. But uh, a lot of people like five, so I'm not stating that's the the definite the the, the definitive on. Um, on five, but uh, we'll get to that. We certainly get we'll get to part four when we do our Ringo Lamb series. Uh, me and Tom KW. So um, yeah, I only have two minor notes, just some observations of gags. But I'll, I'll let you have the floor if you want to share anything else first. No, just uh, I think that overall I still like the first one a bit better as well. This one um, not quite as successful as the first one, despite going bigger in terms of the effects. I think it was a few million Hong Kong less in terms of the overall intake, which I think the first one was, I think I said something like 26 million, and I think this one was around uh, 23 uh, when all was said and done. So by the third one, I think, if I remember correctly, the third one actually ends up making more than this as well. So, so you know, it's still in that era of being a successful film. So Yeah, they never really dipped as such, which, were, which was interesting. Uh, I wonder if that was due to pure star power or that people just knew that this is going to deliver spectacle, man. I, 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 my, my two final notes, just some minor gags that I, that I enjoyed. I mean, at, at, at some points, the Carl Macca character is way too stupid for even a movie like this, you know? At one point, they're, they're, trying, they're being chased, and there's a truck with some planks sticking out of it, so they're, they're trying to catch on to that. And Carl Macca, if I understand things correctly, thinks he's on the truck and holding on, but he's just standing there in the street with a plank and realizes that he's not holding on to the truck and the people are coming closer and closer. So I thought, like, man, that's genius, but that's too stupid for even him. Uh, it, but yeah. but it works, man, because he's sort of like, I'm holding on and then, la, 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 ah! and then he, he never, he, he doesn't slow down his delivery. He's always like, boom, 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 boom. And that makes that work, but it, it's it's way too stupid for for that. And, uh, and my final, the, the way too obscure, note and joke for the movie no one's gonna understand this but they bring back the uh sylvia shang's informer called squealy from the first movie and uh, they do the same gag in terms of getting his attention uh, or sort of the same gag they yell his name out and he pops up 
but why on earth did he have that photo of Carl Macca and uh, some black woman that he befriended in, in the United States? <laughs> because that, that shows Squealy is well connected. He has that. Yeah, that's, yes. that's, uh, I'll, I'll have this uh, Joker at my disposal, right? And if I need to pull it out, like, boom. But it's not the damn kissing or anything. It's just uh, looks like two friends who took a photo together. I don't know if it was a direct relation to that sight gag, but then later when they're at the restaurant, Sam Hoy is supposed to make Juju jealous, and so Carl's arranged for this you know, professional to come in. He's hired her to come in and pretend to be the girlfriend, but then Squealy sees him with this professional, and he thinks that she's with Carl Macca. And so he's going he's the one who informs Sylvia to come to the restaurant and check it out. But he's with an African American actress. I don't know if it's the same actress as in the picture. And but he's he's with her there. And I'm just like, is there a connecting gag that I'm missing or something? Or because they never really come back and address the the photo that he shows, right? That just is like a momentary thing. It might have been something that was just lost on us. Yeah, we won't spoil it, but I, th- I think the Choi Hawk's uh, f- final scene at the end is uh, is brilliant. <laughs> he's, now he's he's raving mad now. The way he uh, the way he uh, s- saves the day essentially is uh, is brilliant. <laughs> uh, I mean, who, who on earth would believe that he would be suitable for that that particular predicament during the end? Because it doesn't arrive in in uh, in gear, you know, that would uh, suggest that he's an expert at. Uh, doing what they're gonna do he just arrives in his trench coat and uh and uh beard and hat and uh and pipe and that's it. <laughs> it it's a cartoon by that point you know so it's not adhering to any reality good fun good fun as for availability fortune star holds the rights to the film and the series and have put out one through five on blu-ray and a dvd as well and uh, there's also a blu-ray box set uh, so you, you can buy buy them all or buy whichever you prefer knowing fortune star this is probably an upscale from their dvd versions uh, containing remixes only no original mono that set um, as far as i know uh, seems out of print uh, currently so you you can't really get the set but you can probably get the individuals if you like uh, i have the DVD set, and I think that looks and sounds great. There's genuine mono seemingly for all movies, but the last one, like even the mono option, is a down mix of uh, of the 5.1 mix. But since I don't like 5, really, I didn't I didn't feel that was much of a loss. So uh, there's still options in Hong Kong. Uh, movie 1 through 4 was released internationally as Mad Mission. And Anchor Bay in the US collected all of these international editions of the films, which uh, contains some uh, shortened edits uh, of the film uh, removing some local comedy but some movies three and four mainly even features exclusive footage for the international release for instance there's more footage with actor peter graves in the third one and there's a different opening to a fourth one involving sam hoy but was only done for the international release and the dubs are actually very very good for for those international releases i think they might have been done outside of hong kong because i don't hear the same damn actors that you normally expect from uh, from Hong Kong English dubs. That box set, at least last time I looked, was still available. I bought it years ago, but it was still available. That uh, Mad Mission box set for as low as twenty US dollars on Amazon or what have you. So it, that's a steal and worth to uh, it's worth to have for fans of the series because they, they are widescreen transfers and f- fairly good looking ones. So uh, you can't go wrong there. Do you remember at one point seeing seeing them in English these movies? Or it's always been Hong Kong for you. No, it's just been the Hong Kong versions for me. 
they 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 play very well and I like one is edited down maybe five ten minutes or whatever and I still didn't notice anything as such uh, that was missing so the editing job seems to have been a you know careful one and they focus properly on uh, what to take out and uh, things like that so uh, they uh, play well with me uh, I don't know what the case was with uh, two if they shortened anything but um, the, the only thing I was disappointed about because I was hoping that there would be an English version of Sam Hoy's uh, Friends song in the international version but uh, it is uh, the Cantonese language uh, song where he probably sings about friendship being all well and good and <laughs> cool <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a good little pop pop number for for the movie that's it Paul should we uh, wrap this up we'll, 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 we'll try and get to f- free and uh, and uh, complete the series uh, eventually but uh, for now uh, you, you know by by the third one I don't know if you remember this but by the third one it was all James Bond by that point they bring in Richard Keel and it's all like a spy from there right yeah uh, our man from Bond Street it's cool too and they, they got a Sean Connery look alike they shot in Paris for the first sequence and now Cinema City had more you know they had more travel expense so let's go to Paris Get Richard Keel, <laughs> Peter Graves, and uh, Peter Graves in Hong Kong. And it's it's funny too watching the international edit of three. In the Hong Kong edit, Peter Graves is dubbed. Everybody's dubbed into Chinese. The international edit of three actually has sing sound dialogue with Peter Graves and then dubbed dialogue from when he's interacting with Sam Hoy, who is still speaking in English. So and that's a little like pro for for the international version of uh, part three in particular. That uh, Choi Hak directed, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So he he. Uh, took reins for that one eric sang only did one or two all right then let's uh, finish this one off then and uh, this has been uh two varied movies from uh 1982 and 1983 okay i don't i don't think about connecting them as such sometimes there are connections because hong kong cinema just creates it for you whether cost wise or some kind of theme but uh i picked them sort of randomly but anyway this has been our discussion on legend of a fighter and aces go places too on the show called podcast on fire and we are available on podcastonfire.com make your choice over there plenty of shows to pick if you have any questions or feedback if you want to tell us what your favorite aces go places movie is then uh, be sure to do so podcast on fire at googlemail.com check us out on social media you can follow us to facebook and twitter via the buttons at the top of our website you can also go to itunes and rate and subscribe to us over there click the stitcher button to stream us either on the website or the applications available uh, from the apple app store and google play and i write about hong kong movies and taiwanese movies of a variety of genres over at sogoodreviews.com my small video reviews are available on sleazykvideo.com and my twitter handle is at sogoodreviews and paul you got final plug concast uh what's uh, where is it and uh, give us a little bite-sized again uh, sort of a salesman pitch uh, w- where is it and what is it uh, concast or east screen west screen so yeah we are at concast.com that's k-o-n-g-c-a-s-t.com the show is east screen west screen where myself and my co-host and friend kevin ma sit down and we try to talk about hong kong chinese cinema and uh, whatever else i can talk about now that i'm stuck in south florida uh, but we are continuing the show. The show is going forward, and we're doing uh, stuff. At least we're trying to keep a weekly schedule, if we can. And uh, so, yeah, check us out and uh, let us know what you think. Excellent. Well, we are signing off then for this particular discussion. So I've been Kennedy, and with me was Paul Fox of East Screen West Screen. So say bye, buddy. Bye-bye. <laughs>